up on today's show, tomorrow marks the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Percy Farwell, he's now mayor of Gander, Newfoundland. He was deputy mayor in 2001, and we all know the story about Gander. We'll also chat with Kevin Newman. He was the former anchor of Global National, the first anchor of Global National, and the Honorable Anne McClellan. She was, of course, the Justice Minister and the Attorney General. Watching the world wake up from history. And weren't we all doing that 20 years ago tomorrow? Of course, we've had a lot of discussion on the air already. And we're going to spend a good chunk of today um, talking about the 20th anniversary of 9-11. we got a lot of other things to talk about, as you are no doubt well aware. But we will spend a good deal of time today looking back on a day, a single day that shaped our lives more than any other in recent memory. Of course, tomorrow does mark 20 years since 9-11, the terror attacks on Washington and New York City that killed thousands and in an instant changed everything everywhere. Where were you? We'll share our stories. We'll hear from people who were in one way or another forced into a crisis situation they couldn't possibly have seen coming, including our first guest, uh, who can only spare a few minutes for us right now. So let's get right to it. We're going to chat with Percy Farwell, who is mayor of Gander, Newfoundland. 20 years ago, he was deputy mayor as that small maritime town suddenly found itself front and center in a global crisis. Uh, Mayor Farwell, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. It's my pleasure. You know, uh, I know you just have a few minutes, but walk us through that day. Obviously, none of us had any idea what was coming. So how did it unfold? How did that day transpire where you were well like like everywhere in the world i guess it started as a as a, a normal day until uh, until the events started to unfold in in new york and shanksville and and washington and uh, and with the closure of uh, american airspace shortly thereafter or all north american airspace uh, shortly thereafter uh, it became uh, readily apparent that uh, Gan- this was not going to be an ordinary day in gander because of our position on the uh, on the great circle routes and and the uh, the flow of air traffic between north america and europe uh, this was happening at peak westbound flow time for uh, aircraft on the North Atlantic. So, uh, you know, uh, very shortly after the uh, airspace was closed, uh, our our airport was inundated with uh, with aircraft. We ended up with 38 uh, wide-body aircraft here with about 6,600 people on board, uh, distressed people, uh, um, and and um, they needed, you know, well, it took a while before they were allowed to disembark. Nobody knew really what was going on right. or how long they were going to be here. And um, they ended up spending four or five days with us. With uh, and they arrived on our doorsteps with no luggage because they weren't even allowed to uh, check their luggage off the aircraft. So, you know, the the emergency plan in our uh, in our community and at our airport was obviously invoked, and a lot of communication and coordination, but um, is involved in those things. But more than anything, it was the, the outpouring from all every individual citizen in our community and yeah. in our region to facilitate all that, which has now become legend. Um, on that day. Was it 
was it pure chaos? Like you say, you have an emergency plan, but no, I mean, this is this is beyond anything anybody can plan for. <laughs> um, I imagine it, it just the, the calls and and the scramble to to accommodate and to and to meet the need that suddenly descended upon you. Um, was it utter chaos, or was everybody just sort of let's get this done? I think it was more the latter, you know, as uh, being part of it. I mean, you know, we emergency we uh, immediately. Uh, declared our emergency and put together our emergency response center and so on. And that involves bringing together the, the various components in the community that are going to be required to, to deal with any situation that might come up. So, uh, you know, uh, the coordination and communication aspect of it is what is what is uh, uh, laid out in, in your, your plan. And uh, and so that was not chaotic, but, uh, of course, the you had to adjust on the fly to the circumstances. These plans are typically uh, developed around, you know, disasters in the community, loss of life, massive injuries, de- demolition of infrastructure, they don't really contemplate 6,600 healthy people showing up with no notice and staying with you for four or five days. But, you know, I, I guess it was, it, it, it would be hard to say it wasn't chaotic, but uh, I'd say it was uh, organized chaos. And it must have been, like, like we all know the story, and we know how the community rallied together and said, "This okay, this is what we're facing, let's get it. That had to be, in a way, just sort of so so gratifying and inspiring to see people leap into action and do what had to be done. It was, it's very gratifying, and then, you know, we, we, I guess we, you know, we, we grasped that better after the fact and reflected on it after the fact, because things were a bit too busy here during yep. the time frame uh, to really uh, spend a lot of time thinking about that. And, you know, it, it was, uh, I guess in some sense, it was a distraction for our own people. I mean, everybody was, was in shock over what was happening and so on, and, and our people had certainly had something to occupy themselves to uh, as a distraction from all of that, and, and an opportunity to, to actually reach out and help where where typically, I mean, uh, those I think those those values exist everywhere. It's not certainly not unique to Gander and area and so on. Uh, but um, typically, you watch helplessly when things are going on around the world and people need help, and uh, and you really can't do anything other than write a check and hope somebody does something good right. with it for those people that are being impacted. And we were given the opportunity to to tangibly help people. So I think it was it was uh, you know it was helpful to us in terms of coming to terms with what was going on ourselves. Now we know all the international attention that gets paid to Gander, and we can talk about that in a minute, but first of all, the legacy for the people of Gander, uh, people like yourself, who have been there the whole time, um, what what's the feeling in the community? Is that something, is that a source of pride? Is that something that you still talk about, or is it just, you know, it, it was just something that happened? It's 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 a source of pride. It's I think I think with the recognition and with the you know with the response that the world is having to to hearing of the this story through the the various means it's being told, whether it's the Broadway musical or various books and films and so on, uh, it's causing people. You know, it, it's it, there's good messaging going out there. It's it's not about us. It's not about Gander and the people of Gander and so on. I mean, we are characters in the story, I guess, right? But it's about you know giving people pause to contemplate the importance of uh, of uh, treating people with kindness and compassion and how what what seems to be the smallest individual acts of kindness uh, when when grouped together in a situation like this can have such a meaningful impact on such a huge uh, situation right so so i think in the, in the years following we've we've probably come to appreciate that a little more ourselves mm-hmm. things that we take for granted in in uh, that we would sort of say you know it's rather a, a whole home kind of thing that of course you're going to help somebody that that is in a distressed situation, but uh, you know when you look at it on this scale and in this context, you you sort of come to realize that you know what that that is very important and it's important for everybody. 
You know, bonds are forged in times of crisis, and I can't think of how many stories I've heard from people who came from all over the world and still, to this day, maintain relationships with people in Gander and the people that were there to assist them and, and comfort them and, and, and put them up for a few days, as you say. Um, do you have ties that bind like that? Are there still relationships that you forged over that week that still are part of your life today? Not, not so much personal ones with individuals. We, we uh, as in the roles we were in at that time, I guess we crossed paths with so many and yeah. uh, and and so on, right? But but the whole um, the whole experience of of uh, being part of it is certainly something that we'll we'll never we'll never forget. And I am, you know, in my current position, for example, as the mayor of Gander, I'm constantly in contact with people, whether it's media or individual citizens who who have just become aware of the story and so on, that are in that either show up in the lobby of our town hall to look at some of the uh, memorabilia that is there and uh, have just randomly decided to come visit us or um, or have sent mail or uh, classes of school students who weren't even born mm-hmm. when uh, in, in 2001 write, you know, handwritten letters uh, thanking us and our people. So, so there, that, there's that constant reminder and that constant uh, source of pride and of, of those bonds and then we have a lot of people as you indicated that uh, were here during uh, during those days that have returned some of them multiple times some of them are here with us this weekend not nearly as many as would have been had it been, not been for the pandemic of course but uh, it's nice to have those people around us again because you know we need we need to be anchored in what this is all yeah. about and it's not a it's not a celebration of what great people are in Canada or New Newfoundland or Gander or whatever. It's not. It's not that. That's important that that these things happened. But it is first and foremost a a remembrance and and uh, you know of the uh, solemn remembrance of of the events that precipitated all this and how you know how we can all and, and a reminder to ourselves. The story coming out of here would be the reminder to ourselves that it doesn't matter how far away it is, yeah. you, you can still do something that's important, right? Yeah, uh, great message. And now, like you say, the, the occasion will be marked all over the world. Uh, to Tomorrow. And I imagine it'll hit a little differently in Gander because you have that connection. And as you say, I imagine it will be a, a time where the community comes together and remembers what happened on that day. It is, and and you know, and we and because of the the story that's been relayed, I guess we we get a lot of international attention as a result of it, and and we have some international visitors as a result of it, and representatives of the U.S. government sharing sharing the weekend with us, and so on. So uh, so it is, yeah, it, it resonates quite loudly here in Gander. We yeah. remember there's there's hardly a citizen here that was well, certainly anyone that was living here in 2001 is intimately familiar with the, the story and has their own recollections and their own ways of remembering, you know, because this was a distressful, this was a stressful time for everybody in the world, you know. This was a loss of innocence, and to see our, our neighbors to the south under under an attack on their own soil that that they seemed hard, uh, helpless to uh, to avoid, you know, it's a, it's a very sobering, it was. It sobering was jarring, thought, yeah. and, and, and uh, you know, sort of emphasizes your own vulnerability, right? So... So uh, our people have a very personal connection to that. Fate delivered it, and and uh, and they responded, and uh, we're proud of that. And it's uh, certainly part of our own internal memories, just as much as it is part of, I guess, of the legacy of what our uh, of what that response meant to those that were in need and to those that have heard that story. And I appreciate you coming on and sharing the story with us this morning, uh, Percy. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for your interest. That is Percy Farwell, who is the mayor of Gander, Newfoundland. Today he was deputy mayor on this day in 2001, uh, during 9-11, of course. Come on up, brother. 
songs were written about 9-11. Dozens and dozens and dozens. But for me, that one, The Rising by Bruce Springsteen is the definitive one. Yes, I do love Bruce Springsteen, but if you know the story of that song, uh, if you don't know the 9-11 relationship to The Rising by Bruce Springsteen, you'll never hear the song the same way again. The story about how that song came about is awesome. Legend has it, and Springsteen apparently told this story to, uh, you know, reporters over the years. Uh, Days after 9-11, I think it was actually a couple of weeks after 9-11, he was walking on the boardwalk in New Jersey. Cold, rainy day. He's walking alone, uh, and a car pulls up, and somebody he doesn't know rolls down the window and says, Hey, boss, we need you right now. And he went home, and he wrote The Rising, inspired by this guy saying, You know what, Bruce? You're sort of the American storyteller. We need you. And he went home and wrote it. It it tells the story of a 9-11 firefighter. Just listen to the lyrics from the first verse. Can't see nothing in front of me. Can't see nothing coming up behind. I make my way through this darkness. Can't feel nothing but this chain that binds me. I lost track of how far I've gone, how far I've gone, how high I've climbed. On my back, a 60-pound of stone. On my shoulder, a half mile of line, which was his fire hoses. I mean, it's just, it's an incredible story. And I remember when he performed it live on Letterman shortly after 9-11. And that was sort of when things, I'm not going to say went back to normal, but if you remember at that time, there was David Letterman, one of his first guests, I can't remember who it was, but he was talking about, can can we laugh again? Because, I mean, Letterman was off the air for a long time, too. I mean, everything was. It was all news. Uh, And when Dave finally came back, he said, is it okay to laugh again? Is it okay to have fun? Is it okay to try and take the next step forward and you know we talk about celebrity and who cares what they have to say and blah 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 blah. but we look to that right and Letterman was one of the guys who said yeah we're gonna do this we're gonna get back on the air we're gonna carry on we're gonna continue Springsteen went and wrote his songs concerts were held you know and if you remember any sporting event following 9-11 the U.S. national anthem was something to see there was a, a movement and a sentiment around the world, uh, but especially in the United States, that I think we could really use right now. There was community, and there was coming together, and there was looking out for each other that um, I've never seen before since. It really was a remarkable time. Uh, Speaking of it being a remarkable time, uh, this weekend, of course, 20 years since 9-11, and, you know, just some of the stories that you're sharing. Um, this listener says, I was at home when my ex-wife's colleague came bursting through our doors, asking if we knew about the plane crashing into the World Trade Center. We watched the TV, saw the second plane hit the towers, and started getting my daughter ready for school. A while later, she came back and said, Daddy, the building fell. I ran downstairs and just staring at the TV with tears running down my face. And, it, and then we were all transfixed, right? And what were we watching? We were watching TV. Now, um... This weekend also marks, roughly, the 20th anniversary of Global National. It was launched, give or take a few days, this time 20 years ago. That's a hell of a way to start off your run as a national newscast. The biggest story in years. And the guy at the helm through all of it was Kevin Newman, Global National's first employee, its first anchor. And we're delighted that Kevin has taken some time to chat with us this morning. Kevin Newman, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Kevin Newman, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, Shay, that was uh, just a lovely, uh, uh, a lovely essay you just gave. I'm a big fan of Bruce Springsteen's as well, and I remember watching, listening to that song the first time it was recorded, and just, man, it just it hits you hard. Oh, it does. I, like I say, there's been countless songs written about 9/11, but just that one through the lens is like, 
Wow, if you don't feel something, uh, check your pulse. Yeah, no kidding. No, it was, and it was, uh, and I remember, like, um, I, I think, I think, I think he captured the sorrow of the moment, but also the strength, and was a big part of just trying to help New York and 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 help all of us, I guess, sort of put begin to put that that horror into some sort of perspective. Yeah, exactly. Now, looking back, it's the biggest news story of our lives to date, happening just days after the launch of a national newscast. I mean. What was that day like? I mean, it's a, it's a, it, you guys were all true pros, the best of the best, but I imagine all of a sudden you want to talk about a trial by fire. Here it is, guys. Go. What was that like? Well, I mean, we barely knew each other. We were six episodes into this new show. We'd uh, only collected two weeks previous. And, and I don't know if your listeners will remember, but, you know, Global at that point wasn't, uh, wasn't a national network until, you know, Global National, the same day that Global National yeah. went on the air. So we were, we were having to learn to connect things differently. And it really was, um, trial by fire. But I, I think it forged us as a news team much quicker than would have happened otherwise because we learned to rely on each other. We learned that we could trust the journalism of one another. Um, uh, as far as personally, I mean, um, I, Global National is based in Vancouver, so I, I got the call at about 5.30 in the morning that something was going on in New York, um, drove as fast as I could to get into the studio, plunked myself in the chair, and at that point, you know, the second tower was uh, on fire, and the first one looked like it was, it was about to go, and um, I had just moved from New York City four weeks before that. I had worked for ABC in New York and had moved my family to Vancouver to launch Global National. And so as horrifying as it was for everybody, for me, you know, there was a part of my brain that was going, I know people in that building. They're my neighbors. Um, you know, I hope they're okay. Or, you know, I, I, I wonder where Lydia is. And so, you know, I couldn't let that feeling uh, get out of me too often because I had to contain my own fear and my own sorrow because a lot of people were scared that day and they were looking to the anchors, I think, on television for some sort of assurance that, you know, the world wasn't falling apart. And, and you know, Kevin, you make a really good point. We've all we've all covered big stories and, and um, I think at the time, you do your best to shut out all of that and you do the job and you report the news, but at some point, um, that stops and it all comes back and you sort of realize that you're not just a reporter of the news. I mean, this affects you too. When did that happen for you? When was that moment where you sort of sat back and said, oh my God, I can't believe what's happening here? Uh, it, well, that day, uh, we were on air live for 16 hours straight. Um, and then finally, uh, I went home and I was driving uh, on the Upper Levels Highway. And it was a beautiful day in Vancouver that day. There was like blue skies and I, my head had been filled with such horrible images, some, some of which were seen on TV, some of which weren't. And uh, I just pulled over to the side and let it all go. And I just sort of cried for a bit. And then so many things happened right after that. I mean, the the, the special that, that's on um, tonight at 8 o'clock, we, 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 our thesis is that that event was such a massive disruption and led to all kinds of things that happened afterwards, whether it was the war in Afghanistan or the war in Iraq or the technology that we used to cover the news, that it really was that pivotal moment where, you know, previous to 9-11, 
you know, you didn't feel threatened in North America uh, the same way. After 9-11, suddenly when you got on an airplane, you were looking at people differently. So, you know, and, and it affected, you know, I mean, for all of us who felt the fear that day, there were just as many people who were the object of people's fear. You know, I think of the Muslim Canadians and, and how their lives changed that day and how suddenly they couldn't cross the border without, you know, facing extra questions. And, I mean, it really was a seminal moment. It absolutely was. And like you say, it sort of, it forged global national as a voice for Canadians. Um, and as you mentioned, disruption, 20 years of global national will air tonight on global television. If you think about it, Kevin, you started that 20 years with 9-11 and ending it with COVID. Two, probably the biggest stories, certainly of my lifetime. And yeah. Global National, I mean, the growth that you've seen over there as the original anchor, the guy who launched it and walked us through 9-11. How do you feel looking back on 20 years of, of Global? I mean, you've got some ownership there, right? Yeah, I, I, you know, as you know, uh, these shows are personal to people that, 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 that front them. And so, yeah, I mean, when, when it went on the air, it wasn't at all likely, it seemed, that it would be successful because there were two main big news casts in Canada at CBC and CTV that had 50 years of legacy yeah. and loyal viewership. And then here we were, a, a, an upstart little group of people trying to do national news at the dinner hour which had never been done successfully so i mean when i when i sit here today and i and i and i'm told that it's been 20 years i, I feel some satisfaction at that that what what was uh, a startup 20 years ago is now part of the journalistic fabric of Canada mm -hmm. and that people know that it will be there and Donna Friesen and the team have done a great job of you know building on that legacy and and so I I do I do take a great deal of satisfaction because there aren't many journalism uh, endeavors that have succeeded uh, in the last 20 years um, and, and Global National has succeeded not only by informing viewers it's financially successful it's now baked into a news into a into the network and I think baked into people's and viewing habits so I, I find that very gratifying yeah and you should I mean you got us off on the right foot there's no doubt about it um, I was just chatting with Jalen during the commercial break and I, I was on the air when the second plane hit I think I finished my show that morning but then I know shortly after maybe even during that show you took over the air and you wouldn't give it back Kevin do you remember exactly how, like how long <laughs> were you guys on the air with the national broadcast it was it the entire rest of the week um gosh well i know it was 16 hours that day <laughs> and then we were doing like specials that night um i mean it yeah it it, it i mean every all american networks pulled their programs yes, yeah and, and so suddenly uh, you're right so um suddenly it was like keep going keep going keep going because there's nothing else in our schedule to fill it and you guys seem to know what you're talking about um and then it was just one big long adrenaline rush for years after that yeah no doubt and uh, and as i say we all watched in admiration uh, thanks for your time this morning kevin i appreciate it very much Thanks, uh, Shay, and say hi to Jaylee for me, too. Will do, will do. Thanks. Uh, that's Kevin Newman, who was the original anchor on Global National. And as I said, disruption, 20 years of Global National airs tonight. It really is remarkable if you think about it. Um, as Kevin was mentioning, the fact that, you know, Global National is now um, one of the strongest national newscasts in this country and watched by millions, um, where it started. And the fact, just think about, you're doing anything, a startup like that, but your job is to cover the news. And the biggest news story of your lifetime happens six days into your run as you're just figuring out how things work and who's doing what and all the rest of those sorts of things and they hit the ground running and uh were flawless 
20 years later, as you're marking the 20-year anniversary, we're going through COVID. The other biggest story, probably the bigger news story of our lifetime. to the 9-11 conversation. And of course, for anyone who lived through 9-11, it's a day that we don't forget, right? That's the whole point of this. But um, for some people, though, it threw them directly into the middle of a rapidly unfolding and global crisis. Our world literally changed. The attack, of course, targeting the U.S. But if you remember, those planes were, many feared, just the start. What else was coming? Was there more? And yes, we were definitely asking all those questions that day and in the days that followed right here in Canada. Uh, were we going to be targeted? If you remember, Al-Qaeda had put out a list. I don't know if it was rumors or speculation, but uh, West Edmonton Mall was on the list. The refineries out east of Edmonton were on the list of potential targets. And there was all kinds of discussion that there could be more. Nobody knew anything at the time. So what was happening in the halls of power that day? What was being discussed? What plans were being made? The Honourable Anne McClellan, Senior Advisor at Bennett Jones these days, but she served four terms as the Liberal Member of Parliament for Edmonton Centre from 1993 to 2006, and she was Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada on September 11th of 2001. Uh, a pretty, well, that's about as high as you can get within uh, the inner workings of our country's government, and I've always been fascinated to know, first of all, uh, Ms. McClellan, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Um, we, we know what George Bush was up to. That was documented almost blow by mm-hmm. blow in the days right. that followed. But I've never really heard much about what was going on in Ottawa on that day. Can you walk us through that day as a senior member of the Canadian government? What were you guys facing? What were you doing that day? Well, what I was doing was attending a federal, provincial, territorial meeting of ministers of justice and solicitors general in White Point Resort in Nova Scotia, because the Nova Scotia government and the Nova Scotia minister of justice was uh, the co-chair of the FedProv territorial meetings. So I was not in Ottawa. My colleague, the solicitor general, Lawrence McCauley, was with me at White Point, and uh, we had just started our meetings uh, that morning of September 11th when maybe we'd been into the meetings for half an hour and we were all arrayed around a a table, obviously, Um, and uh, somebody brought a message into myself and my colleague Lawrence McCauley saying that a plane had gone into one of the towers. And we clearly, we announced this, uh, shared this with our uh, provincial territorial colleagues. Everybody was shocked. But at that point, everybody thought it was a tragic act. Right, yeah. Um, and when you ask about Ottawa, in fact, the House had not returned. September 11th, the House wasn't going to uh, come back and for another week or two weeks. And cabinet ministers like myself, we were out across the country or in our home ridings. So the day after 9-11, when some of us, very few of us, actually made it back to Ottawa, Mr. Kretchen, the Prime Minister, was there, and he immediately called a, a meeting of the cabinet ministers who were in Ottawa, and there were about eight of us, along with the Prime Minister, who then took stock of what had happened uh, the day before and what uh, the course forward would look like. So that day, as you say, it sort of you were updated during the meeting. Did you continue on with the meeting throughout the day? I mean, at some point, as we learned more no. and more about what was happening, I imagine the course of your day changed and there were some calls. Yeah, and dramatically. After the first, as I say, everybody thought it was a tragic accident. 
And I remember, I think it was my colleague from Ontario, Tony Clement, perhaps, they were very concerned, the Ontario people, when they heard that a plane had gone into the first tower, because uh, a lot of traffic between Toronto and New York City, especially in the mornings, those morning flights, and, uh, you know, they were particularly concerned that maybe it was uh, an Air Canada flight or a flight from Toronto that had gone into one of the towers. But uh, so they left the meeting just to try and find out any information. Um, we continued at that point with the meeting. And then, of course, I think how much later? Less than half an hour? About maybe? a half an hour, yep. Yeah. Um, we, we got the note that a second plane had gone into the second tower. And at that point, we all knew that this was not a tragic accident, that this was a planned, we knew not, no, no details, no information. But I think we, at that point, pretty clearly knew that this was some kind of attack on the heart of the United States of America. Yeah, at that point, we knew it was the United States of America. But I remember everybody was wondering, what's next? Is there more? And I'm sure as a member of the Canadian government, you had to be thinking, is this coming here too? What do we need to be aware of? Absolutely. Absolutely. And keep in mind that we, uh, I mean, Mr. Kretchen, uh, the Prime Minister, was uh, in Ottawa, but uh, very few cabinet ministers in Ottawa. Uh, John Manley was then Minister of Foreign Affairs, but John was on a plane coming from Germany, right? His was one of the last planes to land in Toronto uh, before, you know, airspace was shut down. And you'll remember on that day, on the very day, my colleague David Collinette, the Minister of Transport, was at conf- a conference in Montreal with his deputy. They immediately got in the car and drove back to Ottawa because they knew that they were going to have to do something with the airspace because the U.S. had closed its yeah. airspace, right? And there were all these flights in the air from Europe, from Asia. And where were those flights going to land with the U.S. airspace closed? Because they would start to fall out of the air. They would run out of fuel. And, you know, people, I think, um, don't always understand the urgency of what we, what David Colinette and his deputy and the prime minister had to deal with in terms of do we let those planes land? Right. And the decision was made to let them land, and of course, uh, that now is is uh, a part of history. But we landed an awful lot of planes in different parts of Canada, including Edmonton. And of course, probably the most famous landings were in Gander, Newfoundland, which is now a global uh, uh, Broadway hit, West End London hit, uh, called Come From Away. Uh, but that day, it was, uh, as you would expect, you don't know, are there going to be more attacks? Are there more terrorists on more planes? And one of the most frightening things, uh, I think, for Mr. Kretchen, and a lot of people didn't know it at the time, was that there was a Korean air flight uh, coming in. Uh, they, they were actually on uh, course to land, I think it was in L.A., at LAX. But they were coming in over um, Alaska and uh, the Northwest Territories. And for whatever reasons, um, the pilots had turned off their comms or whatever. They weren't listening. They knew nothing about the attacks in the United States. And uh, air traffic control could not reach 
the pilots on that flight, fully loaded, oh, 747. Boy. And so, uh, actually, there was a discussion, which we learned later with Mr. Kretchen, as to whether if they could not reach the pilots, whether they shot the plane down. What a decision to have to try and make. Absolutely. You never, ever want to have to make that kind of decision. Fortunately, uh, we scrambled uh, the CF-18s, and maybe that was a NORAD Canada-US, or maybe, uh, I don't remember the details, but the CF-18s went up and flew right along beside the pilot in the 747, and it got his attention. As Justice Minister and Attorney General, I imagine there was a lot of discussions uh, from your office with law enforcement and with different security agencies across our country to, to be on guard, to be watchful. What kind of discussions took place in terms of trying to keep Canadians safe? Oh, look, I mean, as uh, we've already discussed, nobody knew no. what was next, right? We knew that, that, you know, an attack on the Pentagon, then, of course, the plane uh, going into the field in Pennsylvania, the two towers. Um, nobody knew whether uh, whether there were going to be either more air attacks or whether there would be ground attacks, whether those would only be in the U.S., whether, you know, European capitals, Ottawa, Toronto, Montreal, whatever. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the RCMP, Canada's National Police Force, very much uh, on high alert uh, as and working closely with their uh, provincial counterparts, working with CSIS, our uh, uh, intelligence gathering agency, and them, of course, all working with FBI, CIA, Interpol, um, as this global network of intelligence gatherers and law enforcement um, uh, tried to figure out what was going on, what was the chatter, what were they hearing. And I think it's probably fair to say that the chatter leading up to 9-11, there was nothing, obviously, a specific in terms of, oh, these guys are going to, Al-Qaeda is going to attack the Twin Towers. Mm -hmm. But there was an awful lot of what we call chatter, right, in terms of of picking up uh, information, intelligence gathering. But probably, although there's been an awful lot of of, um, study and review of, of what was known, what perhaps was not analyzed quickly enough and got back to the front lines that could have prevented the tragedy. But absolutely, I mean, our airports closed once those your, uh, once those planes landed across the country. Uh, and that Korean airplane, I believe, uh, plane, I believe it landed in White Horse or Yellowknot. I'm not, or maybe Vancouver. I'm not sure. Um, but uh, you know, once and the airspace was closed. Um, then, uh, you know, there were not flights coming in and out for days, uh, you know, railway, it was... Everything we stopped. Were, we were in, yeah, we were in White Point Resort. Uh, my colleague Lawrence and I were lucky. Stefan Dion, Minister Dion, had come to Halifax for meetings with his parts, and he had flown in on a Challenger. So uh, Stefan said, Anne, if you and Lawrence can get to Shearwater uh, Base, where the Challenger was, uh, within an hour or an hour and a half or something, uh, you can fly to Ottawa with uh, uh, me and my uh, people. Because otherwise, my, my Minister of Justice, Sass, 
who were with me at White Point, Mm -hmm. they took the train back to Ottawa. And it took them days because there were no flights. Airspace was closed because we didn't know what was going to happen. Um, So I did get back to Ottawa that night, the night of 9-11. And the next day, Mr. Kretchen called a cabinet meeting of those who were in Ottawa. And there were about eight of us around the table. And as I say, that's when we decided, started to talk about, um, you know, the, the steps forward, the way forward, and uh, we started to talk about what kind of commemoration we would have for uh, our friends in the United States and uh, all those who lost their lives. And of course, it wasn't only Americans, but Canadians, uh, dozens of Canadians were in those towers and lost their lives on 9-11. And then, of course, after the shock of it all, and of course, the borders closed. The land borders closed. Yeah. Uh, and there were miles and miles of trucks on either side of the Detroit Windsor border, just on the highway, right? On the highway, waiting for literally days before that border reopened. And of course, we were working very closely with our American counterparts uh, to figure out whether, you know, how to get the land border open. And my colleague John Manley, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, was working very closely with his counterpart in the U.S. Um, but you know, you saw that day, and we wanted to make sure both sides of the border wanted yeah. to make sure that situation never happened again. That. Uh, regardless of the tragedy, that we, if you know, we felt comfortable and confident with each other, Canada and the U.S., and the processes that we put in place after 9/11, that we could keep the land border open, um, because uh, you know, literally for days, the economy ground to a halt. Everything stopped. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But what and about? Then, of course. Sorry. Go so, ahead. I'm just wondering. I mean, because. It sounds absolutely chaotic, which is completely understandable. You would expect it to be. But personally, how did you feel? I mean, did you just get so focused on what had to be done that all of that sort of faded away? You know, Or were, were you scared? Were you personally concerned about what might happen? I mean, just how were you feeling personally as these, this day unfolded and the days that followed? I wasn't scared. Um and I do think you focus on the task at hand, right? So we were reaching out to our counterparts in Europe, mm-hmm. in England, in Australia, uh, you know, uh, to uh, talk about what the steps forward might look like, acting as a fairly cohesive, we hoped, uh, world in relation to responses. The UN was very actively engaged in terms of uh, requesting that uh, all governments around the world ensure that we had enacted a certain number of anti-terrorism conventions that uh, were waiting. Canada, in fact, we had ratified a number of them, but there were a number including uh, relating to uh, air terrorism um, that we hadn't ratified. So, of course, we knew that we needed to do that right away. And uh, Mr. Kretchen put in place a a special committee chaired by John Manley, of which I was a member, and there were about eight or nine of us, ten maybe, who were members of that committee, including people like Paul Martin, the Minister of Finance, because we knew we were going to have to spend money to uh, create 
and implement new processes, uh, better ways of collecting information, more human resources, looking at how we could use technology, how that's interoperable across the country, let alone with other nations, mm-hmm. um, all those kinds of things. And that committee met all through the fall, and but by the, I think, end of September, early October, as Minister of Justice, I introduced into the House of Commons Canada's first anti-terrorism legislation. Which was a whole other story. Yeah, and we got that passed. The deadline the UN gave us uh, to uh, enact certain anti-terrorism provisions, and when I say gave us, gave the world, right? That was their uh, uh, objective, was December 31st. So we took the opportunity to uh, uh, legislate the first ever anti-terrorism legislation. And that was a very, very hectic fall. I was in special committee of the House of Commons, special committee of the Senate a number of times. And the House and the Senate, uh, those committees had tough questions. You know, was uh, did the anti-terrorism legislation go far enough? Did it go too far? We got a lot of questions about, did it go too far? Were we infringing people's rights? Right, yeah. And we had an awful lot of very intense discussion, both at committee uh, of the House and the Senate, and then the special committee uh, chaired by John Manley around what the right balance was. Yeah, and, 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 and that battle just waged on. Um, Ms. McClellan, I can't thank you enough for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it is uh, my pleasure, and uh, I just want to say that uh, it was a it was a tragic event uh, for which maybe the world needed to be better prepared. But I can, I think, assure Canadians that over these intervening twenty years, we have learned a lot. Mm-hmm. Both uh, governments of uh, different stripes, we have learned a lot. And we are certainly better at collecting intelligence, analyzing intelligence, and understanding what is happening right. out there. Yeah, and we are much. But safer. having said that, we we live in a difficult world. Absolutely, no doubt about that. Uh, thank you again for your time. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.